This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So a couple of weeks ago, I visited one of our sister churches, and I had a conversation with a couple there who were sharing with me how it has become very challenging uh, when they get together with family, for, for uh, extended family, for dinner times. It has become very challenging to have any kind of enjoyable, civil conversation. Because inevitably, the conversation takes a turn towards controversial subjects, and suddenly they have a debate going on and a heated discussion. And I, I made a comment to the effect of, well, yeah, politics and dinner never go well together. And they said, no, that's the problem. It's not just politics anymore. Or rather, the umbrella of politics has expanded to be so large that the topics of conversation, the range of those topics, have gotten so narrow that it's, it's hard to know what to talk about. We can talk about our pets, our dogs, our, our jobs, neighborhoods. I don't know. What do we talk about? And I understood what, what, what they were referring to because I had other friends who have shared with me similar challenges that they've experienced with their friends and family when they get together. And usually, when people are trying to diagnose the, the source of this, the usual suspect is social media, right? It's that polarizing social media. I uh, saw an article this week by the Wall Street Journal trying to explore this, uh, this issue, and uh, they did an experiment where they set up uh, around 100 automated TikTok accounts. For those of you who, like me, are not on TikTok, it's a social media platform for viewing and sharing short video clips. And so they set up these automated accounts and they gave them interests. They programmed them so that they would linger, as the videos scrolled by, they would linger and watch videos that depicted, that, that had tags that matched these interests of the accounts. And they didn't share those interests with TikTok. All they did is just had the accounts stop and watch videos that were along these themes. So they might be interested in animals or politics, or sometimes they're programmed to watch uh, videos tagged with sadness or depression. And what they found was that over time, and it didn't take very much time, within about two or three hours, the algorithm of this app, TikTok, was able to, without them telling it what they were looking for, identify their interests and show them more and more videos that conform to these interests. And after a while, they stopped seeing all of the viral videos, the really popular videos, and all they would see were things along their interest lines. And what's more is that as they continued to watch, they began to see more and more fringe content and more and more extreme examples of their interests. So for example, if they were programmed to watch videos that were sad or depressing, they began to see more and more depressing content to the point that sometimes it was disturbingly so. Or if they were interested in politics, they see more and more political content, and then they began to see more and more fringe or extreme political content. Now, TikTok is not the only social media platform where this happens. Right? Social media companies, their companies are businesses. Uh, they have a business model that in incentivizes them to have content that we want to see, that we like, that we want to engage, so that we stay in their environment so that we see their ads so that they can make money. It's like why stores want to sell things that we want to buy. So they're incentivized to do this. But what happens is, depending on how we engage with it, we can end up slowly drifting into echo chambers. 
where the only ideas that we're exposed to are the ideas that are in line with what we already believe, and the people we're exposed to are the people who are like us and the people who like us. And over time, the other people can begin to seem like enemies, right? It's, it's who's for us and who's against us, and that's always the question that comes up. And so we see this increased polarization. Now, it would be tempting to blame all of our societal ills on social media. That would be nice, but we can't do that. Because for as long as humans have been in existence, you go back to the very first book of the Bible, we have found ways to be at enmity with one another. Social media may be the new and exciting way that we do it in the 21st century, but this has always been a dynamic of societies. We've always polarized over social issues, religion, territory, geography, etc. And as we've been reading the book of Acts together, we actually see that Jesus' mission is quite polarizing. In the passage that we read in Acts chapter 14, it says that the city of Iconium in modern-day Turkey was divided, some for the apostles, some against the apostles. As we go on, we see that there are some people who are so against their message that they try to kill them. And then we're going to see that there are others who are so amazed that they literally want to worship them. And there are probably a lot of people in between. But friends, if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, you have been given this same message. This message that Jesus is king. And he invites us to bring our broken ways of living and give them to him because he wants to receive us and embrace us and forgive us and bring us into his family. And it's still a polarizing message. There are people who will love you for bringing that message. And there are people who will very much not love you for bringing that message. Now, I want to say this up front. I'm going to say it again later. But as witnesses of Jesus, our chief concern isn't about what people think of us, or how they respond to us. Our mission is not to battle foes or to gather fans. Our goal is to point people to Jesus and encourage faith wherever we find it. That said, I think it's worth talking about how we relate to people who oppose us and how we relate to people who are quote-unquote on our side. And I think there's something that we can learn from Acts chapter 14 about the way that Paul and Barnabas do this. If you're the kind of person who likes to take notes and have mnemonic devices to remember sermons, we're going to talk about how they relate to their fans. I've got three Fs here. Fans. Sorry, their foes. Their fans. And then how they relate to those who have faith. So we're going to begin with how we respond to our foes. Our story today begins in the city of Iconium, like I said, in modern-day Turkey. Paul and Barnabas show up, and they do what they normally do, which is go to the local synagogue, where Jewish people would worship and study the scriptures together, the Torah. And this was a natural place for them to start, because the synagogue uh, was where they actually belonged. They were Jewish people themselves. And so they went to worship with other Jewish people. And the Jewish people were the people who had received the promises of God that were fulfilled in Jesus. So there's a lot less context needed for this good news. And so they come and they tell people about Jesus, and they are wildly successful. 
it says that a great number of not only Jews believe, but also Gentiles. Their message is getting out there. And then the opposition begins. There's a group of Jewish people who refuse this message, who not only don't think that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're so troubled by it that they actually initiate a counter-evangelism movement. They actually go around trying to poison the minds of people so that when Paul and Barnabas come to tell them the good news, they'll be resistant to it. They begin to go after them. And this is actually an important point here. Because when I talk about foes, it's important to know what I mean by that. I don't mean people that don't like us. I don't mean people that we don't like. I don't mean people who believe different things from us, or even people who reject our message. There's a sense in which people aren't our enemy at all, right? God loves people. He wants them to be reconciled to him. Jesus Christ gave his son, his, his life willingly so that they could be saved. And so people are not our enemy. But we do have an enemy with a capital E, the devil, whose objective is to, by all means possible, prevent people from receiving this reconciling message. And unfortunately, one of the ways that he does this is by conscripting people loved by God, made in his image, deceiving them so that they join in on his cause. So when I talk about foes today, I'm specifically referring to people who knowingly or unknowingly are actively working against God's mission to reconcile people to himself. And in some parts of the world, this is really obvious. Right? And, it's, and it's hostile, and it's nefarious. We have brothers and sisters who have people who are actively seeking them out to imprison them for their faith. It's clear who their foes are. Usually in our context, it's not that cut and dried. Because often the people who are actively working against the gospel are actually people we really like. They're our friends. They're people that we want at our backyard barbecue or at our family gatherings. They're not enemies in the sense that you might think. It takes the form of a well-intentioned friend who says to our loved one, you know, you would be a lot happier if you could just leave behind your antiquated first-century view of God and get with the 21st century. It takes the form of the media producer who makes films that are actually really good, that we really enjoy, but that promote this ideology of humanism and the triumph of the human spirit and draw us away from the good news of the gospel. And so we need to ask the question, even if you don't feel like you have enemies in the hostile sense, how do we relate to opposition to the gospel? And the answer that we see in Acts chapter 14 with the apostles is we endure our foes. Look at verse 3 with me. So in verse 2, it says, The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. When they were faced with opposition and pushback, they didn't shrink back and, and say, Okay, never mind, I'm leaving right away. They didn't go on the defensive. They didn't go on the offensive. They just endured 
they kept doing the good work that God called them to do. In fact, when they saw their enemies working, they just worked harder because they realized it is so urgent that we get the good news out there before people's minds are poisoned against it. We need, and, and the people who have believed, we need to equip them and help them to continue in their faith. And so when they saw their enemies moving in, they doubled down and they kept going. And there's some freedom in this. See, our, 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 our temptation is to get obsessed with opposition, right? To get obsessed with it. Sometimes we, we live like people under siege. And I think this may be one of the enemy's tactics to keep the gospel from getting out there. Because if only he could keep us on the defensive or keep us on the offensive, if only he can get us to try to correct every single person who is wrong on the internet, we, he can keep us from having any time to show the love of God to others in word or in deed. If you think about it, it's actually a much more effective strategy than trying to get Christians thrown in prison. Because people find Jesus in prison all the time. People don't find Jesus, at least not that I've found, in the comments section of blog posts. It's easy to get obsessed with opposition, but if we can accept that, you know what? There are going to be people that don't like our message or don't like us because of our message. If we can accept that and not be threatened by that, it actually frees us to move forward, to actually love them, to love those who are opposing us, to pray for them, to pray for God's blessings on them, to pray for them to be reconciled to God and to continue without being jerks, to continue in the mission that God has given us. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for dialogue or debate. There are times in the scripture, in the book of Acts, where you see debates happening. Even with Jesus, you see that. And, and that also doesn't mean that there's not a place for addressing false doctrine within the church. It's really interesting. Later on in the Bible, when Paul writes letters to the churches that he helped plant, he doesn't spend a lot of ink on people outside of the church who are opposing the gospel. He goes to town on people inside the church who are teaching things that are contrary to God's revealed word. So there is a place for addressing false doctrine. That's another sermon for another time. It also doesn't mean that we have to be naive or that we can't be smart about our witness. When Paul and Barnabas realize that there's a plot to kill them in Iconian, they ultimately do move on because they realize that if, if they die, they're not going to be continuing their mission. So part of enduring in their mission was actually to move on to the next city because they had done as much as they could do there. So even in their retreat, they were still enduring. They were still doing that for the purposes of bringing the good news to more people. So our response to our foes is endurance. We do what we can to keep on going with the mission that God has given us, even when faced with opposition. But what about our fans? Right? This seems like a no-brainer. Of course we want people to like us. What could possibly be wrong with having adoring fans? Well... We will find out. So they continue on to the city called Lystra. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas see this man who, it says that they see that he has faith to be healed. And so Paul tells him to get up. Now this man, who's not able to walk, he's never been able to walk. It says that he was lame from birth. But he doesn't stagger to his feet. It says he springs up. Clearly a miracle. And the people's minds are blown. 
They've never seen anything like this. The closest thing they have in their mental framework is maybe myths about the gods taking human form and you know, slumming it with everyday people and doing miracles. And they think this must be what's happening here. And so Paul is doing a lot of the talking, so they figure, okay, he's Hermes, the messenger god. And I guess maybe Barnabas was the strong, silent type, so he is Zeus. And they're talking about all this in the Lyconian language. And so Paul and Barnabas presumably don't understand what's going on because they, they, don't, they don't realize it until the priest of Zeus comes with garlands and an oxen, and they're all ready to offer sacrifices, and suddenly they realize what's happened. And they say, no, stop. It would be comedic if it were not so tragic. Paul and Barnabas did an objectively good thing, an act of compassion. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that extending compassion and care to a person impacted by disability is a good thing to do. And they do it out of the love of God, and they do it to encourage faith in this man. But inadvertently, instead of encouraging faith, they end up encouraging idolatry. And in this case, they end up being the idols. Idolatry is when we take the good things that God has given us and we direct our adoration to them instead of to him. And so inadvertently, they're contributing to idolatry, which is why they've got to stop it. And then there's the reaction of the priest. And maybe I'm cynical, but when I read this, I wondered if the priest actually thought that Barnabas was Zeus or if he saw this as an opportunity to build his brand. Right? Like, everybody's into Zeus worship all of a sudden, so I'm going to go get some oxen and sell some garlands, and maybe I can finally build that altar that I've been wanting. He capitalizes on it. And you know, the same thing, if we're not careful, can happen today, except maybe without the sacrifice. We might, with pure intentions, out of love for Jesus and love for others, extend love to people impacted by disability, to the unborn and their mothers and fathers, to the poor, to refugees. And people see us do that, and their response might be, wow, that Kevin is a good guy and good looking. No, they don't don't say that. (laughs) And what ends up happening is that we draw attention to ourselves and how great we are, even if we don't mean to do that. Or maybe they see what we do and they think, wow, people are awesome. That just restored my faith in humanity. Have you heard that phrase? That restored my faith in humanity. And it ends up strengthening their belief in the triumph of the human spirit. And then there are the people who will capitalize on it. The people who will act like our biggest fans so that we will buy their product and give them our money. Or maybe their vote. I see this on both sides of the political spectrum. But we're not after fans. And the moment that we start chasing down popularity, we are in danger of contributing to idolatry. And that's why Paul and Barnabas react the way that they do. They tear their clothes in a sign of sorrow. They have to stop it. They can't just endure their fans like they did their foes. They have to enlighten their fans. They have to help them to see that the light in them 
comes not from their own goodwill or their own virtue. It comes from Jesus. He is the source of their light. And they explain, we see this, we get a little mini-sermon where we see them explain that everything good in the world comes from God so that we will know to worship God. The rain from heaven, the fruitful seasons, food, and gladness. They're gifts from God intended to turn our hearts toward him. Now, as Christians, it is good and appropriate for us to love our neighbor with no strings attached. In fact, it can be manipulative if you, if you see somebody in need, in desperate need, and you don't help them unless they listen to a little mini-sermon. Like that, that's not showing the love of Jesus. We, we can show the love of Jesus with no strings attached. But people deserve to know that the source of our care isn't our own decency or our own goodwill towards humanity. We love them because Jesus loves them. We love them because Jesus loves us. And we can share this in simple ways. If you feel burdened by the Lord to provide for someone financially, somebody in need, when you give them that gift, it's real easy to say, Jesus loves you, and he sees you. You could ask to pray with them if they're open to that. Or if somebody admires you for the work that you're doing with refugees, and they say, wow, that's just really great that you're doing that. It's really easy to say, you know, I just, I just want to take care of the people whom God loves so much, because he loves me so much. It doesn't have to be a sermon. We can share it in simple ways. As a final note, I just want to make sure to point out that it's very easy for an adoring crowd to become a violent mob when they realize that we're not divine. You see it here, the same people who are about to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas one moment try to kill him. And so another reason not to chase popularity is that popular opinion is a fickle thing. So yes, it's nice to know that people like us, but our mission is not to build a fan base. Our mission is for people to come to know the love of Jesus, just as we have. That's why we endure our foes. That's why we enlighten our fans. And that's why we encourage faith. We encourage faith. Our foes may hate us. Our fans may adore us. But it's not about us. What matters isn't how people respond to us. It's how they respond to Jesus. And so when you look at this passage, at what Paul and Barnabas are doing, if you look through, look at everywhere that belief or faith is mentioned. The reason they spend so much time in Iconium is that so many people are coming to faith in Jesus. And then they heal this man in Lystra because they see that he has faith to be healed. And then after they get kicked out of both of those cities and move on, they end up going back to encourage the faith of those who came to believe. This is a special charism that Barnabas has. If you look at the rest of Acts, Barnabas is always finding where God is working, identifying, hey, I think he's working with the Gentiles. Hey, this guy Saul, he seems like a genuine convert. He's always finding faith, and then he's getting on board with what God is doing. We also see this pattern in Jesus's ministry. He spends some time with his foes, with the Pharisees. He dialogues with them a little bit. He spends time with his adoring fans who want to see miracles. But where does he spend most of his time? 
with this little group, 12 disciples and a larger group that would accompany them and the women who financially supported them. That's where he spent the majority of his time. He spent it with people who were open to God. And that can be liberating for us. Because I think sometimes we feel like it's all up to us. I need to be convincing enough. I need to be passionate enough. I need to be winsome enough that I convince somebody to accept Jesus or to become a Christian. And when it's all about us, when it's all up to us, then if we face rejection, it's going to feel like they rejected us. The first time that I ever remember sharing my faith, um, I don't know if it was the first time ever, but it's the first time I remember, I was in junior high, and it was with um, somebody older than me who I thought was pretty cool, and I wanted him to like me. And um, after getting to know him for a while, I decided I was going to share the gospel with him. And I had given him a Bible, and I started talking with him about Jesus. And he took this Bible that I gave him, and he started turning to verse after verse, showing me verses that he believed showed that I was wrong about Jesus that Jesus wasn't God. I didn't realize it, but he was actually part of a non-Trinitarian sect, and he was trying to win me over. And as a junior hire, I'd never really engaged these questions. I couldn't, like, talk with much authority about the Trinity, and so I was just so discouraged. And I don't even remember how the rest of the conversation went. I left there, and I went outside, and I, I cried. Maybe a little bit for him, but mostly for me, because I felt like I had put myself out there and I'd been rejected. As I look back on that event, and I didn't realize this until fairly recently, it occurred to me that there was actually another person in that conversation. There was someone else who was on kind of the fringe of the conversation who was listening. And as I think back, I realize there were signs of openness to God in him openness to spiritual things. And I I talked with him a little bit before this and during this conversation and even afterwards, Um, but I, I never really dug into that. I was so concerned and obsessed with this negative experience I'd had where I'd been rejected, so caught up in my anxiety over the situation that I missed this really good opportunity, and I, I still regret that. And I wonder, What opportunities might we be missing to encourage faith in another person because we are so afraid of making enemies or afraid of losing fans? And I say this as somebody who chronically struggles with worrying what people think about me. I'm convicted. As I I prepared the sermon, I was convicted about this. And it's hard to change the way that we think, the way that we operate. But I believe that if we're able, if we're able to truly receive the truth that it's not up to us, that we don't have to manufacture faith, it will free us to just be on the lookout to see where God might already be working and to jump in with him and to join him in the mission that he's given us because he's the one that's at work. And so I want to 
invite you to ask a couple questions. You're not going to have time to process it now, but if you're a note taker, you can write these down. The first question I want to invite you to ask yourself is, where have I encountered someone who is open to God recently? It might be somebody who's not a believer. It might be somebody who is a believer, maybe a young believer, or someone who needs encouragement in their faith, but someone who is open to the Spirit of God. And here's the second question. How might God want me to encourage faith in that person? You don't have to overcomplicate it. You don't have to think of somebody who you can share a five-point evangelism process with. Just ask the question, how might God want me to encourage faith in that person? I actually want to pray into that with you real quick. Lord, thank you that you saved us, that you loved us so much that you didn't abandon us to our own devices. We thank you that you have that same love for other people and that your Holy Spirit is going before us to draw people to yourself. Lord, give us the grace to see with your eyes. Open our spiritual vision to see those who are open to you. Lord, prompt us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to encourage faith in those who need encouragement, that you may be glorified in us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.